So the reading today is from 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul, Silas and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. We always thank you, thank God, for all of you, mentioning you in our prayers. We continually remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labour prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you, not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. In spite of severe suffering, you welcomed the message with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for a son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. This is the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We just sung that you would speak to us. We ask that you would speak to us now. And Lord, it's such a pleasure and a privilege each week that you do indeed, by your spirit, through your word, speak to us. No matter what we're going through in life, no matter where we've just come from this morning, uh, no matter what we're facing tomorrow, uh, you continue to work within us individually, but also collectively, corporately as a, a church family. Please speak to us this morning, we pray. As we look at this church, Uh, begun so many years ago and see the apostle who started it writing to them out of his love for them. I pray that we would take lessons, that we would be encouraged and challenged uh, as they themselves were. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as James said at the beginning of the uh, service, we're starting a uh, a new series in our preaching this morning. It's a seven-week series, and we're going to go right through the book of 1 Thessalonians. It's a seven-week series that finishes at the Christmas services. Let just that sink in for a moment. At the end of the seven-week series, it will be the Lessons and Carol service. You're welcome for that little bit of advice. Uh, and James and I will both be preaching through it. We'll both be uh, going uh, to taking different passages as we go through it. It's a great little letter, and my prayer is that God will use it, as I just prayed, to teach us, to encourage us, to challenge us as a church family here at St. Stephen's. Now, one th- we're going to get straight into things this morning. No introduction, no kind of interesting story to get things going, because when you start a series off, you've got to do a bit of background work. We need to do a bit of the, the big picture stuff in order to get to know the letter and how the little bits fit in. So we we need to do that straight away this morning. 1 Thessalonians is a letter. Uh, And verse 1, as you can see behind me, tells us who the letter's from and who the letter's to. It's to the church of the Thessalonians. Thessalonica was a city. It was a, uh, a city in Macedonia. And so the church in Thessalonia is who the letter is written to. And the letter is from three people, Paul, Silas, and Timothy. 
Now we'll actually, as we go through it and continue going through it over the coming weeks, we'll see at different times that the author will sometimes just use the first singular, uh, I. And we know that Paul is the main writer. But here, right at the beginning of the letter, we're told that there are three people who are helping or contributing putting it together. Paul, Silas and Timothy. So who are they? Paul, most of us know. He's the apostle, formerly known as Saul. We looked at his conversion a couple of months ago as we were going through the book of Acts. And Paul is the one who um, uh, wrote a huge amount of the New Testament. A lot of the New Testament is letters that he wrote to specific people or churches. Timothy is not perhaps as well known, but he's still pretty well known. He's a younger guy, a younger minister that that used to hang around with Paul. Paul trained him and he was often one of Paul's co-workers as he went around ministering. The letters of 1 and 2 Timothy in the New Testament are written by Paul to Timothy about how to do ministry. So, So that's Timothy. Silas is even less well known. But he is there in the New Testament if you flick through the pages. Uh, I think the first time you come across him is in Acts 15, where he's described as a prophet. Uh, He's also involved in that, um, we'll look at this next year when we go back to the book of Acts, but there's a very sad uh, incident in the book of Acts where Paul and Barnabas, who've been good mates up until now, have a bit of a bust-up. They have an argument. Do you remember they've got John Mark with them and Paul doesn't want John Mark to go on the missionary trip with them and uh, Barnabas does and they have a bit, a bit of a blowout and Barnabas and John Mark go off and who goes with Paul on his journey? Silas. So that's Silas. He's another co-worker uh, taking the gospel out with Paul and the others. So that's who writes this letter, Paul, Timothy and Silas and who it's to, the church at Thessalonica. But there's more backstory we can do. When it comes to the letters in the New Testament, one of the difficulties of understanding it is it's a bit like hearing one side of a phone conversation. You're only hearing one side and you don't really know what else has gone on. But sometimes reading the book of Acts can help with that. Because as we were going through the book of Acts earlier this year, and we'll be doing it again next year, the book of Acts tells the story of Paul and the other apostles going round starting the gospel. And so often you will read the story of Paul going to Ephesus and the church uh, starting, and then you'll look at Ephesians and it will give a bit of a backstory. And that happens uh, for us in 1 Thessalonians. It gives a good background for this letter. Uh, Remember, each letter in the New Testament was written to a specific person or a specific church at a specific time for specific reasons. So knowing a bit of that backstory will help us understand it. And we find out quite a bit about 1 Thessalonians from Acts chapter 17. In fact, I put the reading on there, Alex. It's at the end of our reading, if you can find it there for people to look at. And what we find in a nutshell is it was Paul who planted the church at Thessalonica. They were converted through his ministry. The church started through him. Have a look at the uh, verses there. When they passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a Jewish synagogue. As his custom was, Paul went into the synagogue and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I'm proclaiming to you is the Christ, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and not a few prominent women. I've never understood that phrasing. I think that means quite a few prominent women. But the Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. So do you see what's happened? Paul's evangelising. He's doing missionary work. 
and a number of people are being converted to Jesus. But the Jews there are unhappy with this, get a mob and go to run Paul out. And what we find as we read through Acts 17 is they do run Paul and Silas out of the town. They run them out at night. That's how dangerous things are at. And so Paul and Silas go to another town about 75k away called Berea. And then, because this is just who Paul is and what he does, he starts telling people about Jesus in Berea. <clears throat> Verse 13, we'll pick it up again. When the Jews in Thessalonica heard that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, they went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. And the brothers immediately sent Paul to the coast, although Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. So put all this together, because this is the background we need for 1 Thessalonians. Paul goes to Thessalonica. He tells people about Jesus. <clears throat> And wonderfully, people become Christians. They start following Jesus. And a church is formed at Thessalonica. But there's a group of Jews that are jealous and angry at what's going on. And so they so incensed are they, they run Paul out of town. In fact, so angry are they, so determined to stop this, they run him out of the next town too. You've got to be pretty grumpy to do that. This is before motor transport. You can't catch the subway to, to Berea to run them out. I wouldn't go 1K. Uh, on foot to try and because I was so annoyed at someone. They go 75k to run them out of there as well. These Jews wanted to stop Paul's ministry. They wanted to stop uh, people coming to know Jesus as Lord and Saviour. <clears throat> so put your mind in Paul's position for a moment. He's had to leave them very suddenly. And so he would have been saying, How are they going? How is this new church that I left there, how's it travelling? I didn't spend as much time with them as I would have liked. I didn't get to build as firm a foundation with them as I would have liked. Uh, have the same Jews that ran me out of town been persecuting them as well? Are they still trusting in Jesus? He would have been worried about this and thinking about this and praying for them. Well, later on in the book of 1 Thessalonians, we'll come to it in a couple of weeks, Paul actually gives a little bit more background information as well because he says in chapter 3 that they were so worried about the Thessalonians that they sent Timothy to go and check up on them. They said, Timothy, you've got to go to Thessalonica and see how these guys are going. And so Timothy did, and now he's come back to them and told them, wonderfully, good news. This is what it says in chapter 3, verse 6, that we'll get to in a couple of weeks. But Timothy has just now come to us from you and has brought good news about your faith and love. He's told us that you always have pleasant memories of us and that you long to see us just as we also long to see you. Therefore, brothers, in all our distress and persecution, we were encouraged about you because of your faith. So do you see the context of 1 Thessalonians? Paul is writing his letter to the church that he planted, to the people that he converted in one sense, after he'd had to leave them, and he's writing it in a good spirit because he's just heard excellent news about them from Timothy. His prayers have been answered. They are in good spirits. Their faith is strong. So that's the context for us as we look at this opening chapter, these opening verses. Paul is thrilled that they're flourishing as Christians. They're doing well, and he is so, so thankful for that. And that's what our passage is about. That's what this chapter, these verses are about. His thankfulness at the Thessalonian church. In fact, after verse 1 where it says who it's from and who it's to, verses 2 to 10, which is the whole chapter, it's actually just one long sentence in the Greek. One long sentence, uninterrupted. And you can see what it's about at the beginning of verse 2. We always thank God for all of you. That's Paul's take-home message from, uh, from this chapter. He's thankful to the Lord for who they are and where they're at. 
And then the rest of the chapter is Paul explaining the different elements that he's thankful for. I think he gives three areas that he gives thanks for. And as we go through them, we're going to spend all our time in the first one. We're going to go pretty quickly through the second and third. But as we go through these three areas that Paul is so thankful about the church in Thessalonica, I'd like us to think about whether he would also be thankful because that's what we are as well. Uh, or whether there's a bit of a challenge there for us. I'm, I'm pretty comfortable that there will be a bit of both for us. But, but this is what Paul would have wanted for all churches. Firstly, verse 3, he gives thanks for their Christian life. For their Christian life. Aaron drew our attention to this verse in the prayers uh, a few moments ago. Verse 3, we continually remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labour prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. don't know whether you've ever thought about it before, but there's lots of uh, very important threes in the Bible. Most important, I take it, is the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but there are others. There's, some, there's one that's sometimes called the unholy Trinity, which are the three things which cause Christians the most difficulty in life. What's the unholy Trinity? The world, the flesh, and the devil. Mark knows it very well. He just <laughs> straight away came out with that. <clears throat> that's right. Sorry, Mark, I didn't mean that. <clears throat> uh, so you, there's another famous three. For the Christian, there are three great Christian virtues, faith, love, and hope. And we see them there. Faith, love, and hope. And yet there is something a little odd in this verse. I read it out wrong when I just read it before. Did anything strike you as you, you heard it or heard me? See, faith, love, and hope are not the words emphasised in that verse. You would expect that they would be because faith, love, and hope is such an important, integral part of the Christian life, uh, but they're not. Have a look at the verse again. We continually remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labour prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. The words he actually emphasises are work, labour, and endurance. These are the things that Paul says spring out of the virtues of faith, love, and hope. Work comes out of faith, labour comes out of love, endurance comes out of hope. And I want us to stop and think about this this morning because I think this is so, so important. It reminds us that as Christians, our faith, love, and hope should never be hollow, empty words. They should never be just passive things. They must produce. They must outflow. Think about that with each of them for a moment. Faith is never just academically agreeing with a set of propositions. It's not as if you can stand on a communion Sunday and say the creed, uh, and that is the faith that saves. So you know, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. I believe that he died on the cross so that sins could be forgiven. The devil could believe those things. Academic. He knows those things are true. Faith is more. Faith is trusting in these things, and faith will be seen necessarily in outworking, in the works that we do. Down through Christian history, there's always been a bit of confusion over faith and works. And when the church is at its strongest, it always says it's faith and faith alone that saves. But the faith that saves is never alone. Always must come out of that faith works. Must be seen in what we do. The works don't save us, but they prove that the faith we have is genuine. Faith is never just an empty, hollow thing. And neither is love. We use the word love today in so many weak and watered down ways. We devalue it with the, the things that we attribute it. I, I love chicken. 
I love driving. I love kicking a ball or strumming a guitar. And we've, we've devalued love when we say that. True love will be seen in the actions that come from it. What's the sign that God loves us? Jesus on the cross. That's love. It's not just a hollow thing. It's something that goes that, that, is, that, that is so active. What about uh, hope? Again, we water down hope today, don't we? I, I hope it doesn't rain today. What a weak and vapid word hope is with no strength. But that's not Christian hope. Christian hope is sure. Christian hope is assured. Paul says that real hope, Christian hope, leads to enduring. Because Christian hope is, you know the promises of God stand. You know the promises of God will be fulfilled. You know that one day Jesus will return. You know that one day this fallen world with all its pain and suffering and death and sin will be gone. And when you've got that light at the end of the tunnel, you know that's true. That's what brings endurance and perseverance. Faith, love and hope can't be empty can't just be academic. Paul is saying that he thanks God that this church at Thessalonica is living the Christian life. Not just theoretically, not just academically. It's leading to practice, to action. Out of their faith comes work. Out of their love comes labour. Out of their hope comes endurance. Faith, love and hope affecting outward lives. Does it for us. Do our lives display what's inside us? They must. It's faith and love that will make a shy person go up to someone else after church and introduce themselves to look after them, even though it's the last possible thing they'd want to do. It's faith and love. It's faith and love that will make a parent at the end of a long day when they're shattered, not just lie on the couch, but go to the foot of their children's bed and pray with them at night. It's faith and love that will do that. It's true hope that will bring endurance for Christians through times when they, it's not only that they don't even see a glimmer of light, they don't even feel a glimmer of light. It will keep them going. True hope will do that. Who's been a Christian here for over 50 years? Just put your hand up. Have you been a Christian for over 50 years? True heroes of the faith. Hope that endures. There's people that we could go to after the service to ask for advice because they will have gone through times of huge difficulty, aching pain, and they've continued to trust in the Lord Jesus through it all because their hope has produced perseverance. We can't be people who talk a good game but do nothing. Christians who've got all the answers in our heads or on the tip of our tongues, but it's never seen in our life. And you see the picture that those words give of the Christian life. Christian life is... Hard work, work, labour, endurance. Do you feel the picture of those words? In our Young Adults Bible Study on Wednesday, we had a talk about uh, this in a different context, but we were talking about my feeling today. You can argue with me if you want after the service, but my feeling today is that work is out of fashion today. Many people today, certainly in the West, are lazy. I think deeply, destructively lazy in a way that you couldn't get away with in times gone past. We don't live in the age of anymore, if you don't work, you don't eat. We live in the age of, if you don't work, the government will give you something. Uh, we live in the age of, if you don't work, don't worry, you're still at home with your parents and they'll do everything. And uh, we, We're in a different age. But we were created to work. 
God created human beings to work before the fall we were to work. And few things bring more satisfaction than that tiredness that comes at the end of a day when you've been busy. Few things are more kind of make you feel good when the the tasks that you had to achieve have been done. Work is good and necessary. And I'm not talking about paid employment. You can, the person I know in the world that works the hardest doesn't have a paid job. But so I'm not talking about paid employment, I'm talking about work. It's the same though in the Christian life. Work, labour, endurance, that should be coming out of us on a daily basis. So I ask you this morning, as I've been asking myself through the week, who are you serving at the moment? Who are you working for, struggling for, for their good? Who are you looking out for and serving? Who are you tired and suffering on behalf of? Because our faith, our love, our hope, our love and hope must be seen in the way, it must come out in our lives. True faith works. True love labours. True hope endures. Paul thanked God for the way the church at Thessalonica were living the Christian life. I pray that he'd rejoice as he looks at us too. So that's the first one. Secondly, I'm much quicker through these two. Paul thanks God for the, for the way the Thessalonians received the gospel. He was so thankful. Remember, he was the one who took it to them. He evangelised them, but he was thankful for the way they received it. Have a look at verse 4. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he's chosen you, because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. In spite of severe suffering, you welcomed the message with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. So here he describes how the gospel came to Thessalonica. And these are very important verses because it talks about evangelism. It talks about mission. It talks about how people become Christians. So have a look at the verses. How did the gospel come to those people there? Well, there's other ways to put it, but I would, I'll contest to you this morning. There are five elements there in those verses. And we as people are responsible for two of them in verses 5 and 6. Do you see the five? How did the gospel come to them? Words, power, the Holy Spirit, deep conviction, and example. That's how evangelism was done. That's how mission was done. That's how the gospel came to these people. It came firstly in words. See what Paul writes there? Our gospel came to you not simply with words. Therefore, it came in words. We saw that this morning when Alex put Acts 17 on the screen. What did Paul do when he went to the synagogues? He persuaded. He explained. He proved. They were, that was the language that was used there. He shared the gospel to them in words, told them about Jesus the Christ. It's sometimes said today that Christianity is caught, not taught. I hate that saying. That Christianity is caught, not taught. Because what they're saying is... <clears throat> What it means by court is that it's the importance is on what you do. You living the Christian life with integrity and uh, demonstrating in the things that you do and don't do. That's the important thing. So Christianity is caught, not taught. I hate that. I know what people are saying when they say that phrase. I agree with what it affirms. I don't agree with what it denies. Because it's affirming one thing but denying another. It's true that our lifestyle and example is crucial. I'm going to say that in a moment. If we're just hypocrites and we say things with, with our lips but we don't back that up in, we, the way, in the way we live, that's terrible, that's shame, shameful. But it has to be taught as well. 
Because the Christian gospel has content. We believe certain things about who Jesus is and what he's done. And those things need to be communicated, explained. So the gospel came to them in words, but not just words. Look behind me as it carries on. Our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, with deep conviction. I would contend that it's God that does all those three. Because it's saying that although our words are important, they're not enough. God needs to be at work when evangelism and mission is being done. The Holy Spirit needs to take words and make them powerful and make them convict hearts and minds. Our words, no matter how clear or persuasive or faithful, will never be enough alone. We need God by his Spirit to open eyes and ears and hearts and change lives. Then and only then will the gospel be received properly, savingly. But Paul then gives another last element, the other one we're we're responsible for, because he says, you know how we lived among you for your sake. This is the truth of Christianity is caught, but it's caught and taught. It needs to be caught and taught. It's both and. The example of a Christian life is still so important, so that when people see us, they see people that live a different life from the world around them. Now, do you see that if there's those five elements, we're responsible for two of them? The words and the example. And then it's God that does the rest, making those things powerful and convicting by his spirit. And verse 6 tells us that this took place with the Thessalonians, that in spite of severe suffering, they welcomed the message with joy given by the Holy Spirit. So Paul is thanking that God for the way they received the gospel. I know that the Lord would rejoice in the way we've received the gospel here. But there's lessons to be learned for the way we share the gospel. What are, the, what are the things we need to do if we're going to share the gospel from these verses? I said there are two things we need to do, but there's actually three, isn't there? We need to have the words. We need to set the example in life. And what's the third thing we need to do? Pray. Thanks, Mel. Pray that God would be doing the other work by his spirit, convicting and making powerful. Now, there's real. I say this all the time, but there's real wisdom as a Christian knowing who you are, how the Lord's made you, and where your weaknesses may be. There may be some of us this morning that are saying, I'm not good at the word part. I get flustered. I don't know how to answer questions or kind of say things. We can work on that so that you can do the word part more effectively. Come and see me after the service. We'll talk about it. Come to Christianity Explored and get some helpful hints. There will be some of us who don't do a great job setting an example in life. That was me for the first three years I was a Christian as I was working at the milk factory. And I had started to believe I'd become a Christian and if you'd been alongside me in the milk factory over those years, you would never have known I was a Christian because it wasn't evidenced in my life at all. I just went to church on a Sunday uh, and then said and did different things when I was away from church. If that's some of us this morning, we may need to buck up in that area so that we know the words and, and it's backed up in the way we live. Some of us, though, can do both both those two things, and the danger is we then think it's all up to us. And God's pretty lucky to have us on his side. No. It doesn't matter how good we are. The Lord is the only one who can change lives. We must be people of prayer as we're evangelising. We must be people who get down on our knees at the people that we love and care for who don't know Jesus and say, please, God, open their hearts. Please use me, even though my words are fallible and my example's not always the best. And... Do you see? So God, Paul prayed thanks for the way they'd received. I'm so thankful for the way our church has received the gospel. But there are some lessons here for how we share the gospel with others. So Paul's been thankful for the way they're living the Christian life. 
the way they've received the gospel. Lastly, very quickly, he's thankful to God for the way the Thessalonians witness the gospel now to others. And this builds on the last two. That's why we're not spending any more time on it. Verse 7, So you, that's the church at Thessalonica, became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Archaea. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Archaea, your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Do you notice that in verse 6, the Thessalonians were imitators of Paul and imitators of Jesus? But now in verse 7... They're the model that others imitate. Very important to see that. The imitators have become the ones who are now imitated. They're now the model. That is the way in the Christian walk. As Christians, when we first become Christians, as well as looking up to Jesus and the apostles supremely, we look up to other Christians. They mentor us. They set us an example in word and deed and they teach us. And, but there comes a time when we then are to do that for others. And because it's not often spelled out when that should happen or structurally how it goes on, sometimes it doesn't happen very deliberately or intentionally, but it must because it's so important. When mature, wiser, more mature, more wise Christians look after those below them, The problem, I think, sometimes is that of humility. We don't tend to think of ourselves as the wise, supreme ones. Who, But there will always be people who are less mature, Christianly, than us. How can we serve them and set an example for them? There will come a time with maybe our children or grandchildren, but it won't all just be relations. I love it at St Stephen's when I see uh, the children looking after the babies. I love it when I see the youth looking after the children and raising them up. The young adults looking after the youth. The adults looking after the young adults. Uh, I've got a son today who, I I wasn't going to say it, sorry, he turns 20 today. I still remember when he came here and he was much younger. And there were some young men in this room today who went out of their way to be a wonderful inspiration and encouragement for him. And I've seen him flourish in the Lord because of that. And they did it in a way that I couldn't as their dad. So good when those things happen. I now rejoice as I see him doing it with others. It's got to happen. Who are you doing it for? There will be someone who is less developed in the Christian walk than you. Who can you inspire and encourage? The Lord's message rang out from this church at Thessalonica. It, was, it rang out everywhere. Their faith in the Lord was seen by everyone. Everyone saw, verse 9, how they turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. Do you notice what they noticed there? Do you notice what they, they saw in the church of Thessalonica? Three things. Turning from idols, serving the living God, waiting for his son. Turning, serving, waiting. In other words, faith love, hope. What they saw were works produced by faith, labours prompted by love, endurance inspired by hope. Turning from idols is a work of faith. Serving the living God is a labour of love. Waiting for the Son is an endurance of hope. What everyone could see in them was their Christian life being lived out. As the Apostle Paul gave thanks for the church at Thessalonica, I pray that we would live that out ourselves here and therefore be a blessing, not just to ourselves, but to the world around us. I pray that we will be an encouragement. 
And I pray that going through this letter over the next few weeks will really help us and challenge us as we seek to do that. Let me pray. Father, we thank you so much uh, for this lovely insight into the ministry of the Apostle Paul with a group of people that he had such a love for because he'd shared the gospel with them. He'd seen them become Christians and now we see him ministering to them, seeking their best. And I pray that we would take heart and encouragement from that, but also see challenge in it ourselves as well. Lord, please, as we continue to go through this series over the coming weeks, speak to us, change us, challenge us, make us more like your son so that we may be a greater blessing to those around us. And we ask this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.